This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. There's something about tattoos that provokes a strong reaction. Sometimes that reaction is admiration for the pain tolerance of its wearer. Other times it's aberration, disgust that anyone would taint their bodies in such a way. But for indigenous Filipinos, receiving batok, or a traditional tattoo, was a spiritual event, a ceremony. In this episode, I want to undo any negative stereotypes surrounding tattoos by sharing its history beyond Western sensibilities and speaking with Lane Wilkin, one of the very few recognized mambabatok, or tattoo ritualists, in the world. He shares the cultural significance of batok, as well as the intense and sometimes disturbing paranormal encounters he's had during ceremonies. Chapter 1. You want to look like a gangbanger? I was an incredibly influential 12-year-old. I was the perfect consumer for manufactured pop. I bought what was sold to me. And that included the Spice Girls, the girl group of the 90s. And I had a little book that shared random facts about them, including all of their tattoos. Sporty Spice had a Chinese symbol and a barbed wire on her left forearm, and I remember thinking it was so cool. I even drew the exact same tattoos on my Barbies. So when my Tito gave me and my sister high-quality waterproof temporary tattoos, I picked the one that looked the most like Sporty Spice's. I knew that my parents would be mad if they saw it, so I decided to place it high up on my forearm so it would be covered by my shirt sleeve. And once it was applied, I stared at myself in the mirror for a long time. I just felt so badass. Retelling this now, I know how lame this sounds, but bear in mind, I also wasn't allowed to wear makeup or color nail polish, so to me, this was rebellious as hell. My Tito wasn't joking when he said these were high-quality temporary tattoos. It lasted through multiple showers, and I was successfully able to keep it hidden from my parents the whole time, all the while sneaking secret glances of it by myself in my room. Then one day, I was in the living room watching TV. My dad had come downstairs, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but it prompted me to raise my arms in excitement and I had completely forgotten about my forearm secret. My sleeve slid back, revealing my brightly colored fake tattoo. 
and my dad reacted exactly how I expected him to. So, you want to look like a gangbanger? He said, half jokingly, half disgusted. What, it's just fake? I tried to defend myself. Where did you get that? He asked. From Tito. My dad was not surprised. My Tito was the only one of my close family who had prominent tattoos. And really, it's just one giant tattoo on his leg. My dad made me wash it off and reminded me that only criminals have tattoos. This attitude is not uncommon at all. He grew up in a conservative time where the only people who had tattoos were incarcerated, or soldiers, circus freaks, and unruly rock and roll stars. But way before tattoos came to America, or American colonies such as the Philippines, they had existed among indigenous peoples around the world for thousands of years. And for indigenous Filipinos, tattoos held a significance that was far beyond skin deep. My name is Lane Wilkin. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am of uh, English, Scandinavian, and Filipino descent. I am what is called a Mamba Batok, a traditional tattoo practitioner from the Philippines. And in my practice, we uh, deal a lot with the spiritual side of the world. Uh, Mamba Batok is a ritual tattoo practitioner. It's different from being a tattoo artist. Tattoo artists get to express themselves artistically, whereas what I do is a ritual that is designed to unite the descendants and ancestors together symbolically and spiritually through the practice of tattoo. Uh, this is a practice from the Philippines that dates back thousands of years ago. Uh, some of the oldest tattooing artifacts that have been discovered in the Philippines are dated close to 4,000 years old. And so the practice formerly was very much a part of everyday life, uh, part of society, whereas after uh, the Spanish advent, this practice has gone into decline, and most places in the Philippines no longer have a tattooing practice. What I've been doing here in the States uh, for the Filipino-American community is try to recover that practice for them. And the Mambabatuk sometimes acts as an intercessory between the spiritual world and this world. We are expected to be able to sense what a person needs, what their ancestors want them to be uh, marked with, as well as you know what would be appropriate for that person's role in our community. And so the marks reflect all those things, but the marks foremost are dedicated to the ancestors, what we call anito. They're meant to enhance a person's relationship with the spirit world or with their ancestors. Because people are coming from this Western understanding of tattooing as uh, body art or adornment, uh, they don't realize the, the depth that comes with uh, cultural tattooing. Uh, when we tattoo in the ancient days, we would be sacrificing animals and part of that animal would be set aside as a food offering for the ancestors. The other part of the animal would go to feast the people who are doing the tattooing or, or the community that is involved. And so when you make these offerings, what we call atang or alay, 
and you invite your ancestors to join you. And there are prayers that have been handed down to me from my, my mother's side for the purpose of summoning ancestors to a ritual or a particular event. And in those prayers, we ask them to come. We ask them to come and recognize the batok or the tattoo that we are placing upon the person. And people get surprised when they have a spiritual experience. The very first person I tattooed after my dad, and uh, this is a Filipina uh, from the Bay Area, grown up outside of the Philippines, uh, didn't know anything about the ancient culture, but while she was getting tattooed, she kind of uh, blissed out and had this vision of a man squatting near her, watching her get her marks, and he, she was describing his regalia, what he was wearing, his, his loincloth, and, the, and the, what she called a turban wrapped around his head and how it was red. There is no way that she could have known any of that. You know, most Filipinos don't even know what their ancestors wore, really. It was a vivid description of this person, and I knew exactly what she was talking about, but uh, she had no idea. That very first time that I did cultural work, there was this visitation, so to speak. And it happens. When the Spanish colonizers first arrived in the Philippines, they called it the Island of the Painted Ones, because of how decorated the people were. And according to Spaniards, tattoos were demonic and ungodly. So in the process of converting the Filipinos to Catholicism, Batok, as well as countless other traditions, were nearly erased. Today, many Filipinos are eager to receive Batok and keep this tradition alive. But there aren't enough Mamba Batok to keep up with the demand. There are over 120 million Filipinos or people of Filipino descent in the world today, and there are around 10, maybe, recognized Mambabatok in the Philippines. Uh, there may be others that I don't know of. And so the demand is really high. Uh, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything like that. It's, it's just that there's very few people that do this type of ritual work. Uh, when people come to me, they are asked, first and foremost, what is your ethnic background from the Philippines? Where did your ancestors originate from? What region of the Philippines did they originate from? Because different islands, different regions have different markings. They have, uh, they might have similar motifs, but the, how those motifs are oriented changes what ethnic group or ancestor you belong to. And then we need to ask them, you know, about their role in the community. What do they do? Because some of the marks reflect that. We also ask their reason why they're asking for this ritual. And that's one of the, the big uh, questions that helps me decide whether or not they are ready or not to receive this, these marks. Everybody's skin is different. Every person is different. Emotionally, your emotional state affects how your skin receives the ink. Uh, some people's skin is really thirsty. It'll just drink the ink right up. It's, it's beautiful to tattoo, and other people, it's a struggle. Uh, so sometimes a tattoo can be done in, you know, under an hour, and I've tattooed as long as 11 hours. Yeah, it's, it's different for everybody. Every tattoo tells a story. Sometimes that story is as simple as wanting permanent wearable art. For soldiers in the Civil War, they heavily inked themselves so their dead bodies could be more easily identified. 
For those who are incarcerated, do-it-yourself tattoos provide a sense of individualism once it's been stripped away. And for Filipinos, a tattoo is a visual connection to our ancestors. So I find it so strange that our modern society tends to lump all tattoos together when they serve a variety of purposes. So if you're like my dad and are averse to tattoos, have conversations with those who are inked. Ask them the story of their marks. As you'll hear in the next chapter, the story of how they received them is just as expressive as the marks themselves. Chapter 2. Stories with Lane. So I never wanted to become a mamba batok. I, I uh, grew up here in the States. When I was 19, I um, moved to Hawaii uh, for a couple of years. And it was there that I was kind of awakened culturally, I guess. I um, felt a familiarity about uh, a lot of different aspects of Hawaiian culture. And uh, during that time, there was uh, maybe just the bare bones beginnings of a Hawaiian renaissance in terms of their tattooing. But the Samoans had already, you know, they've had a continuous practice and their practice is also thousands of years old. But it got me interested in what our culture in the Philippines, which is related to these other islands of the Pacific, what our tattooing culture was like. And so I began researching it and um, studying it, never with the intention to become a practitioner, but just to get the correct uh, markings for my uh, ancestry. And, uh, you know, over the years, after about 20 years of research, I released uh, a book on Filipino tattooing. And I had been helping, assisting with uh, both the Samoans and the Hawaiians in their practice, what uh, in Samoan they call it a koso, uh, someone who stretches the skin so that the tattoo practitioner can make accurate and clean marks on the body. And I had been doing that, and people kept asking me, oh, when are you going to start practicing? And I, I had no intention of doing it. Um, but one day my dad called me up and he said, son, I have some bad news. I, um, I have cancer. I have mesothelioma. And for those of you who are not familiar with mesothelioma, it's pretty much a death sentence. It's it's a very aggressive cancer. And uh, my dad assured me that, that we were going to fight it, of course. And so uh, I went down to Arizona to spend time with him and, and help him and take him to his appointments. And the oncologist said that uh, they that they would like to do radiation treatment for him in the hopes of prolonging his life. And so they made all these measurements on his body, marked them with Sharpie uh, for the, the computer to target uh, and irradiate his body. But um, they said, uh, Mr. Wilkin, we would like to uh, tattoo these uh, radiation targets on you so that we don't have to do the measurements every time. They'll you know, free up the time that you have. And uh, he said, well, let me think about it. He went home and he was talking with me and said, you know, Lane, I don't want a man I don't know with a machine I don't know touching my body. You've been studying tattooing all these years. You tattoo me. And I 
I could not refuse my, my dying father. And so I got a stick, um, drilled a hole in it, picked a lemon thorn off of my mother's tree, put it into that wooden dowel, um, secured it, got some India ink, got a hitting stick to tap that, uh, the other implement with, and uh, my brother stretched and we tattooed those radiation targets on my dad. And those were the first tattoos I ever did. My dad, he ended up passing. And um, I had told some of my friends in Northern California about my experience. And one thing about the Filipino community is that they, they love to gossip. They love to talk story. And um, before long, people were asking me for work. Uh, for ritual work. They knew that I had the background knowledge for it. Uh, they knew, knew that I did it in a culturally appropriate way and uh, began asking me for the work. And uh, over the years, it just kind of escalated and escalated and kept growing. And then people began calling me a Mamba Batok. And uh, so that title was given to me uh, by the community. I didn't crown myself that or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I. I do my best to honor the title that my my community has, been give, has given to me and, and do the work in a, in a good way. I don't tattoo everybody that asks me. Uh, some people are not ready for it because they come from this uh, Western mindset that this is just body art. This is a way of expressing myself. You know, this isn't a form of personal expression or artistic expression per se. It's, it's uh, rooted in honoring our ancestors by receiving their marks. So there are some people that are just not ready for it. And I have to tell them, you know what, I think we need to wait. Most of the time, those are young 20-something gym rat males who want to have something that looks like the rocks tattoo, and I don't do that. <laughs> These marking ceremonies open a connection to the spirit realm. And over the years, Lane has come across a variety of spirits that range from benevolent ancestors to terrifying entities. This was the beginning in, the, in January of 2018. I was a guest lecturer at uh, University of San Francisco. And so I flew up there to speak at the university as well as do a little bit of uh, work while I'm there, uh, tattooing a few people. And I had an appointment with this woman that I had tattooed uh, about two years prior. And so I knew her, very quiet, demure woman. The last time I ta had tattooed her, it was a wonderful experience. But while I was there in San Francisco, it, it, it just felt wrong. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. I, I didn't feel right going into uh, the appointment. And the day came that I was supposed to go work on her. I woke up thinking, well, I think I'm probably going to cancel because I just don't feel right about this. There's something wrong. But during my morning prayers and meditation, I felt this thought come into my head, you need to go work on her because you can help her. So although I didn't want to work on her, I, I kept the appointment. And I had a brand new assistant, brand new stretcher to help me. And we went up to meet her and her partner. And as we're driving to their house, I, I just felt off. It just, that feeling of anxiety got worse and worse the closer we got to their place. 
And when we got to the home, you could feel this type of tension in the air, uh, almost like thick humidity. And it was palpable. It was, it was oppressive almost. And so we knocked on the door, we came in, the, the feeling intensified, and I knew that there was something wrong. I knew that she had a spirit that was unwanted. And I don't always carry this with me, um, but I happen to have some dried guava leaves, which we use as a smudge, uh, as well as other things in our herbal medicines in the Philippines. But uh, I, I asked if I could smudge her, and she agreed. And so I got my guava leaves out, and, and I got them lit. And when I went towards her arm where we were going to tattoo, the, the smudge would go out. <laughs> And so I knew there was probably a, a nasty, a nasty entity with her. So I, I lit them again, made sure they were on fire good, and and then and tried to cleanse her a little bit. But uh, I knew it was just kind of softening the blow. It wasn't driving anything out. She was asking for this protective piece and had been asking for a year and a half. I asked her, "Where do you want this protective piece?" And she said, "Right here on the outside of my wrist." And her partner says, no, babe, you know that that's not where it's supposed to go. And this quiet demure woman started getting hostile. She's like, I don't want it anywhere else. I want it here on the top of my wrist. She says, no, babe, you know it's supposed to go on the inside of your wrist. That's where you put your negativity. That's where you put your anger. I don't want it there. And they had kind of a low-key whisper fight while I'm standing there. It was very awkward. But her partner kind of gave her a look. Like, if you don't do it where it's supposed to go, it's a deal breaker. So she's like, fine, I'll get it right there. And so I drew up the design on her wrist, and she starts getting really antsy, like nervous, like almost shaky. Uh, so we did the prayers. We summoned our ancestors. We did the food offerings, and it still felt wrong. I knew that I was in for a little bit of a battle. So... My newbie stretcher and I, we get ready to go. And, and after the first two taps, she starts growling, growling like an animal, <laughs> making noises like that. And then she would alternate between that, laughing hysterically and sobbing and just go back and forth. And, and my, my poor new stretcher is looking at me like, holy crap, what is going on? And I just looked at him like, brother, just hold the stretch. And so I'm hammering away, trying to get the, the ink in her skin, and she's thrashing around. Her partner is holding her, trying to keep her steady while she's thrashing. And I got out a particular tool that I use that has a stingray barb on it that's been sharpened into two points that we dip that in the ink and then you, you tap it into the skin. Well, in the Philippines, the, the, the stingray tail and barb are used to drive off uh, a swung, what we, what you would probably think of as a vampiric entity. And I got that little tool out, and I started finishing up the design, and, you know, she was howling. But right when I finished the design, she just, <laughs> and then just went limp. My new stretcher is looking at me like, what the hell was that? And I just flat out was blunt with the with those people. And I said, look, whatever that was, it's gone now. But if you don't make changes in your life, it'll find another way 
it'll find another entry point into your body. And we packed up and got the hell out of there. Not all marking ceremonies are like this. Sometimes, the spirits that are present make themselves known in a much more subtle way. There's subtle little uh, experiences where you just feel a presence or you'll get a chill for no reason uh, while we're getting the work done. Or the person will go to sleep while I'm tattooing and they'll dream. They'll dream of uh, ancestors or they'll dream of their family or, or family members that have died. I remember once uh, one of my apprentices and I were working and all of a sudden this uh, this perfume came into the room and uh, we could all smell it. And I asked the recipient, I'm like, do you smell that? And she goes, yeah, that's my grandmother's perfume. So when we invite them, they come. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer, and podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel. And also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me. So do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. A lot of people think that this method of tattooing is more brutal and hurts more than machine tattoos when really it's the opposite it actually is a lot less painful uh, most people describe the experience although they feel the pain they feel that it is soothing uh, that the rhythms of the tapping are soothing the comfort that they feel from the assistants who are stretching the skin having their families present especially for women they will often go to sleep while i work and so it's not the same type of experience as getting machine tattoo. When you are going to receive batok, you need to bring a food offering called an alai or atang. This serves three purposes. One is to symbolically feed our ancestors and provide them with food. The, the second purpose is to distract the malevolent entities. In the Philippines, the belief is, is that spirits are attracted to blood. So obviously in tattooing, blood is being spilled and it would attract spirits and not necessarily good ones. So uh, putting food aside for those ancestors, and as I mentioned before, in the old days, we would sacrifice an animal and part of that animal would be set aside as the offering so that the spirits will go to that food or to that blood rather than to the recipient. Uh, so it's, it 
it is a type of distraction to those that might be malevolent. Uh, the third purpose of it is uh, practical uh, flies and things that spread disease. They would go to the food rather than to the person's blood. So it's a way of minimizing the risk of infection. Uh, so although it's a spiritual practice, it is practical as well. I could easily have spent hours on the phone with Lane with the number of stories he had. But for the sake of time, I asked him to share his favorites. I have another possession story that's more comedic. <laughs> And I can't mention names. <laughs> I went down to L.A. to to do some work uh, to tattoo a few recipients down there. And this woman had contacted me. The woman was a mainstream Christian, so didn't necessarily believe in a lot of the supernatural or anything like that. But she asked if she could set an appointment for her daughter to sell her daughter's sobriety uh, X amount of years. And of course, I thought that's a wonderful reason to get uh, get some marks done. So, yeah. So we set an appointment. And my host in L.A. is known for having spiritual ability. And she's a traditional healer. The day of the appointment arrives and this woman who I met before gets out of the car. And then this girl gets out of the car. Looks like she's a tween, like somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Now, Filipinos look young. Uh, they can look young for a long time. My mom will still claim that she's 16, even though she's in her 70s. And so I thought, well, maybe she just looks really young. And so when she came in and we, we had a chance to talk, I, everything about this young woman seemed like she was 14 or 13 years old. Just her body language, the way she carried herself, the way she talked was like a little kid. And I pulled the woman aside and said, how old is your daughter again? I don't, I, you know, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to tattoo a minor. She's, she's 24. And what? Oh, you know, trying to stop my surprise. I, oh, she looks young. You know, you can never tell with Filipinas. And I, I joked and, but it was really kind of off-putting that she seemed like a little, little girl. So, you know, we do all the protocols and everything like that, and we start tattooing. And partially through the tattoo, I had my host helping stretch the, the woman who's a traditional healer. And we get halfway to the work, and all of a sudden, the ink won't go into her skin. It just won't go. And so I checked my tool. I'm like, did I, did I break my tool? Is it not sharp or something? I look at the tool. No, it's, it's still super needle sharp. I dip it back in the ink. I try a tattoo again. It won't go in. It just won't go in. And so I'm thinking, okay, something's going on here. Let me, let me see what's going on. And so, you know, just put my tool down for a second. And I just kind of put my hand over the spot that wasn't accepting the ink. And right when I went over the spot, this image comes into my head of that little girl from the exorcist. <laughs> It was just my brain's way of telling me, yeah, she got something, and it's yucky. And it was so surprising when I floated my hand over that area, that image popping in my head, I actually was taken aback, you know, physically taken aback from it. And my host picked up on that, and she sensed it too. And and she looks at me like, we got to do an extraction. We got to get rid of that thing. But how do we do that in front of her mom, who is a very hardcore Christian? 
And so we try to do this on the sly. We try to remove it on the sly. And in our traditional medicine in the Philippines, there's uh, you would extract that from the person. And if there's nothing to put it into, you internalize it. And then you have to expel it. And sometimes that's very violently through like vomiting or just burping, really, or, you know, things like that. You have to get rid of it. Um or, or place it into something else. So we just, you know, kind of, well, let's just take a little break here and, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, got our hands on her trying to pull this thing out and we're, we start burping. Both she and I, we burp, burp, burp. Oh, I don't know what I ate. Oh, oh burp. And she's like, I don't know either. Wow. Burp, burp, burp. <laughs> and uh, my host looks at me hey, let me take the bulk of this because you still got to do the work. So she starts doing some heavy extraction and these big old belches coming out of her. And she, finally, she goes, can you guys excuse me for a moment? And she leaves and goes upstairs behind closed doors, lets out two gigantic farts. And... <laughs> and... Uh, comes back downstairs and um, we heard it downstairs but then you know glided my hand over the area and it felt clear and went back to tattooing that you can it right in the young woman's demeanor totally changed after that she acted more mature it was it was really strange you know just the timber of her voice changed it was more, her behavior and everything was more age appropriate after we finished the tattoo we have a saying where we love it when we're just physically tired and not spiritually tired or emotionally tired, exhausted after doing this type of work. You know, we don't always have these super big paranormal experiences. And so, sometimes they're just very small things, just little subtleties like perfumes of the grandmother coming in or, you know, feeling someone touch them. I've been doing work on a woman in Hawaii. She's Filipina. Uh, but her wife is Samoan. And one time when I was tattooing her, I kept having these Samoan words pop into my head. And then the words were popping into Natalia's head, too, different words. Natalia is Lane's apprentice. And neither one of us speaks Samoan. And so we said to her, her wife, hey, what does this mean? And I was like, um, it means very skillful. And, oh, I think that my ancestors are here watching you guys work. And then these other little messages would come through in Samoan, and we'd have to go to uh, the wife and ask her what it means. And she'd say, oh, yeah, they're saying that the, the Tufunga, the, the tattoo practitioner, is skillful, or keep strong, keep strong. Oh, no, he's getting tired, you know, keep strong, keep strong, <laughs> stuff like that. And it was just kind of funny. And then Natalia said, someone keeps saying something to me, and I don't understand what they're saying, but they have a raspy voice, and it's a woman. Who is that? And uh, the wife is like, oh, that's my auntie. She just passed away, you know, last year, and she's got this raspy voice. You know, just weird little things like that happen. Not all ancestors who show up during ceremonies are as pleased with Lane's work. So we had this appointment with this woman up in Chicago, She's of mixed heritage. And so different places in the Philippines, they were colonized earlier than others, I guess you'd say. 
And so some of her ancestry, what we call Kapapangan, it's a particular ethnic group from Luzon. And they were, had stopped their tattooing practice very, very early on, possibly even prior to the Spanish advent because of Islamization in the Philippines. But uh, their practice has not been around for centuries upon centuries. Whereas on her other side, her father's side, they tattooed up until uh, the 1600s, maybe into the 1700s before the practice was totally lost. So more recent ancestors that had tattoos, whereas the other side hadn't tattooed in probably a millennia. So if a person comes from a mixed background, often we will tattoo uh, the father's side on the right side of the body and the mother's lineage on the left side of the body. So the father's side of this particular woman's ancestry were uh, from the Visayas, and so recent, more recently had tattoos. And you could feel all those ancestors celebrating when we started doing the work, just celebrating. And we were doing a chest piece on this woman, kind of a collar piece that wraps around the front. And the father's side, on the right side, her skin was thirsty. It just drank in the ink. It, it was going so smooth, so fast. 45 minutes to the center of her chest. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, we're going to get done with this quick tonight, have time to relax and enjoy each other's company and talk story a little bit. This is great. But when I got over to the mother's side, the skin wasn't accepting the ink very well. And I started having all these thoughts come into my head. You can't do it. it. You should just stop. It's too hard. Tell her that you'll finish it another time. You're too tired. And I had entertained these thoughts for a few minutes, like, oh, maybe I should stop. Then the thought comes into my head, these are not your thoughts, Wayne. This is somebody who doesn't want this work to to happen. And so I had to shut myself off from that entity, that ancestress who did not want it to happen. I would say she was probably before the turn of the last century. So a recent ancestress, Catholic, didn't understand why her descendant was getting these pagan marks on her body and just didn't want it to happen. And so I kept going. And so she couldn't afflict me, but she was trying to afflict Natalia. She was trying to afflict the descendant. And the descendant started really suffering through the pain. And I kept, you know, we asked her, do you want to continue? And she said, yeah, let's get it done. So. The first side, the father's side, only took 45 minutes. The mother's side, the Kapapangan side, took three hours. You could feel, we felt this ancestress, once the, the tattooing was complete, so disheartened that this had happened and just left. In that particular case, we did debrief with the woman afterwards and said, this is what has happened. This is who we sense it might be maybe find out who this ancestress is and make an offering to her or, or, you know, appease her in some way. So this woman went home, her friends and family that came with her went home. The next morning, I got up and realized that the woman had forgotten her food offering to her ancestors. Uh, Normally, a person is to take care of that after the tattooing, and there's a number of ways to dispose of it. You can bury it, you can put it in a body of water, you can let it desiccate and then it's considered consumed and then it's okay to get rid of. Some people will go put it underneath a tree and allow the animals to take care of it. But you're supposed to 
care for that offering. Well, this woman was probably in just a very different headspace after going through four hours of tattooing and forgot it. So I noticed the offering there. I'm like, well, I'll go ahead and take care of the offering. So Natalia was up. She was in the kitchen. And I reach over and I put my hands on the plate to go care for the offering. And as immediately as I, I picked up the plate, both Natalia and I had an instant headache. And she goes, she came back. She came back. And I'm like, yeah, I can feel her, you know, meddling with my head, trying to give me a headache. And I just spoke very plainly to this spirit. I said, look, your descendant has already been tattooed. She's received her marks. Um, you need to leave. And if you don't leave, I'm going to disrespect your offering. I'm going to just throw it in the dirt outside. And so I did. And then she left. One of the goals of my work is to reestablish the literacy of our people. Because this practice has been extinct in most parts of the Philippines for hundreds of years now, it's important for our community, our, our people, to recover the literacy of our designs. And so I never tattoo anyone with anything that I don't explain first. I want them to be able to understand exactly what they're getting on their body so that when other members of our community and even outside of our community ask, they can explain what those designs mean. Chapter 3. Intuition. I think it is very arrogant for anyone to discount the millennia upon millennia upon millennia of accounts of all these people that existed that say, yeah, there is something that is beyond our sight. There is something spiritual. Uh, there is this spirit world. It would be very arrogant for us to just assume that just because we have a smartphone, that we are the pinnacle of all that wisdom and knowledge. We, we aren't. There are things that are lost to us because of westernization, because of standardization, our global communities um, that we're establishing. We, we end up losing those little bits of wisdom that have existed for centuries upon centuries. I understand skepticism. I'm a very analytical person, but logic can only take you so far. And uh, that intuitive mind, which has usually been emphasized in indigenous societies around the world, um, that indigenous way of knowing is usually the mo more important than uh, the rational mind. And so again, it'd be arrogant for us to just dismiss everybody that ever existed that has had these spiritual experiences as a frenzied mind that everyone participates in, you know, some kind of you know, hallucination or something. No, there's just way too many accounts, way too many accounts to dismiss it. I can only speak from my own experience regarding the afterlife. Uh, I, I did have some experiences with my father after he passed. So with my father, who was a mechanic, after he had passed, he had, he had given me this old Chevy Suburban, you know, made out of steel. It's not one of these new things. It was a big diesel Suburban. And one day I was on a road trip with my family and the thing starts sputtering and not, it lost all power. It was just sputtering and, and I'm halfway between Las Vegas and Kingman and 
I have my wife and my kids in the car. I'm like, I can't break down here in the middle of the desert. That'd be horrible. And I silently prayed to my dad. I said, Dad, I don't know what's wrong with the car, but if you can help me out or give me some advice, that'd be great. And another mile or so along, this thought comes into my head. When you get to Kingman, go to an auto parts store. So we limp into Kingman. I go to an auto parts store. My wife asked me what I'm doing. I said, I don't know. And I got out of the car. I was wandering up and down the aisles in the auto parts store. When Dad, help me out. What do I need to get? And I stop. I feel like I need to stop. And I look down and there's diesel detergent. And I felt like I need to buy that thing. Okay, so I bought that product, went outside. I'm reading the instructions on it. And the thought comes into my head, don't read the instructions. Dump the whole thing in. Okay. So I dump the whole thing in. I get back in the car. My wife looks at me like I'm insane. About two miles down the freeway, all the power comes back in the car. Full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, that was just a little bit of evidence for me, for my life, that even though my father has passed, he still cares about me. The relationship's still there. It's just that the lines of communication have changed. I hope that when I pass, I'll be able to interact with my descendants and, and and continue to care for them. Everybody's spiritual senses, I guess, are at different levels, and we're usually taught in Western society to distrust them. But that intuitive voice, what I usually liken it to, the voice of the ancestors or the voice of those on the other side, it's 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 like an intuitive voice. It's a, you know, we'll talk about it in in Western society as, oh, go with your gut feeling. What does your gut say? What does that really mean? In some of the traditions around the Pacific, the, the gut is the, the seed of conscious thought. You know, modern science is probably catching up with it. I mean, they're, they're starting to refer to the gut as the enteric nervous system. But that intuitive voice is very subtle. It's a very subtle form of communication. I compare it to when you're driving down the freeway and you have this little voice at the back of your head says, take that earlier exit. And sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. We always know when we don't because then we hit traffic or we're late for something. And like, oh, man, if I had just taken that earlier exit, then I would have avoided all of this. Or, you know, that little prompting, go back home. You left the stove on and you go back home like, thank God I, I went back. I would have burned down my house. We don't think a lot about that. But that's the way our ancestors communicate with us. If you start paying more attention to that, uh, the messages become more clear. They can become more specific, not just, oh, I have a bad feeling about this. It, it becomes more specific, like go buy diesel detergent or whatever. To learn more about Lane and his work, visit his website in the show notes, lanewilkin.com. Thanks for joining me today. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash stories with Sapphire to see the different tiers and perks like live watch parties or private tarot readings. Have you received Batok? I'd love to hear your experience. Email me at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sindalo. Special thanks to my guest, Lane Wilkin. Music written by Sapphire Sindalo. 
For more information on this episode and my guest, visit storieswithsapphire.com. <laughs>